The strange, the unusual, the paranormal, the supernatural. This is the All Things Strange podcast. We are your hosts, Agent Ether, Agent ETA, and Agent Anderson. Come along for this week's journey, the Cape Girardeau 1941 UFO Crash Retrieval. Don't forget to join us on Discord for live shows and our Facebook group, All Things Strange. We've also got a brand new t-shirt store. Links in the description on the link tree. Kind of did that one out of order. I panicked, yeah, I tell you. I panicked. <laughs> <laughs> actually, you know what? I don't think I've actually put the t-shirt store on the uh, link tree yet. <laughs> well, I put it on the Facebook group. Okay. The new logo is awesome. Maybe I did. I don't know. I'll check later. It I, is. I get around to I'm it. I'm definitely going to get me one. Yeah, that was actually uh, Agent Redacted did the logo for us. Yeah. Yeah, it looks cool. Yeah, well, I'm pretty happy with it. The background is actually a picture from a park nearby here. He just took a picture. Of, it's got like a little lake or a pond. I'm not sure which. And he just messed with the color settings to make it look kind of eerie in the background. And then it's got that... Uh, that triangle shape there, which, you know, he came up with that. And it's sort of like the letters like ATT or um, ATS or whatever. I don't know. It's kind of like that kind of put into one shape a little bit. And then on the corners, we've got at the top, we've got the eye of Providence. And then at the bottom right, we've got the symbol, um, the alchemical symbol for the philosopher's stone. I, I figured I'd throw that one in there just for fun. And then the bottom right is sort of like a square, sort of like for the, um, for the stonemasons or whatever. And uh, mm. just some occult symbols there, you know, just for fun sort of stuff we do on the show. But whenever yeah, was, I hear the Philosopher's Stone, I, it always reminds me of a Full Metal Alchemist. Yeah, that's why I put it in there. <laughs> yeah. Or I, I One bugged, of my favorite animes ever. I bugged Redacted to put it in there anyways. I didn't actually do it. I just said, hey, do this. <laughs> we paid him though. Oh, nice. Because he actually put a lot of work into it. But all right. Uh, oh, wait, I guess before we get started, we should mention that this was voted upon by our Patreon subscribers. We've got three different tiers. The first tier will get you early access and after hours. The middle tier gets you bonus episodes and the highest tier allows you to vote on upcoming topics. It was actually a tie this week. So I decided to do the UFO crash retrieval and then the bonus episodes actually going to be the other choice, which was Watergate. Good conspiracy oh. type stuff for you there. So that'll be fun. That That's going to be next week. This week for the bonus episode, which I just put out right now, just before the, I started the show, I talked about some COVID, le- doc, COVID document leaks. Because I guess there was, um, there was this document that uh, Congress did some kind of report or whatever, and it was talking about various things, but they were quoting things from documents and they cropped the documents. But it turns out that there's two ways to crop stuff. You can crop it to where you cut out the stuff that you're cutting out, or you can just do it the lazy way and crop it to where that stuff is still there, and you just need to pull it up in a program to reveal what's there. (laughs) So they did the lazy way, and now we have all these really interesting conversations from behind the scenes, from emails and things. So that was a fun one to look into. So that was this week's bonus episode. But all right. Let's get to it. The uh, Cape Girardeau. How do you pronounce that? How would you guys pronounce that? 
Girardot sounds French. Yeah, like definitely. Yeah. yeah, I think it's Girardot. 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 You just say yeah. anything, just kind of slur it and just kind of, you know, do that French thing and it sounds right, I guess. I yeah, swing it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I find this case to be extremely interesting because it happened six years before Roswell. Yeah. You know? And, and yeah, that, that's pretty cool because, you know, like it, it's not as nowhere near as famous as Roswell. <clears throat> Excuse me. Obviously, Roswell is, is like the end-all, be-all. It's, it's uh, anybody who is just roughly familiar with UFO crashes, crashes, or what have you. They they they've heard about Roswell, but not necessarily this one. Yeah, for sure. And there's one possible earlier one that's the 1897 Aurora, Texas crash. I don't think we've done that one yet either. That's kind of an interesting I don't one. Believe so. Yeah, that's one where something crashed into a windmill and then. They buried the wreckage in a well, and then they there was mm-hmm. they buried a body at the cemetery that was nearby, and it's a pretty interesting one. So maybe we'll get to that one at some point. I'm sure it's on the list, and if it's not, maybe I'll put it on there. Along with a million oh, yeah. other topics on there. Yeah, it's a pretty long list, but that's not a bad thing, you know? <laughs> but yeah, yeah. That list is barely even scratching the surface anyways, because there's just so many great topics to cover. All right, so the main source of information for this case is actually William G. Huffman's granddaughter because, well, we'll get into why that is, but it was first brought to mainstream attention in Leo Stringfield's book, UFO Crash Retrievals, The Inner Sanctum. And there's a, I found um, there's another book that it might be in, but his books are hard to find, dude. I couldn't even find that one. And the, I found the other books. He has a book series of crashes, UFO crashes. It's like, it's like seven volumes or something. And I found it collected into one work on Amazon. It's like 300 and some pages. How much do you think that goes for Agent Ether? $5. hundred bucks <laughs> for a 300 oh, wow. page book. Yeah. I was like, dude, this is really cool. Maybe I'll buy this. And I saw the price and I was like, nope, <laughs> I am not buying that. It's probably like a collector's. Yeah edition sort of thing yeah like out of print and hard to find yeah. at that price it well, has it, to be out of print yeah if you did a deep dive i'd have to assume you'd probably be able to find it somewhere like online you know just but but i don't know, maybe maybe <clears throat> maybe not it's on ebay but for a hundred dollars <laughs> i found oh, geez, a louise i found a used copy i think it was on goodreads or whatever <laughs> Maybe, I don't know, one of these websites. I was just searching around a bit. I found it used for about 70 bucks somewhere. I don't know. That's the cheapest I could hmm. find it. <laughs> Birthday yeah, present. That's still an, that's yeah, that's still an nope. Yeah, still an nope for 70 bucks, yeah. Well, there's a there's a ton of out-of-print UFO books that um, that actually are pretty good stuff. And there's some that are not good stuff. It's a mixed bag, you know, as it goes. All right, mm-hmm. well, let's talk about the Cape Girardeau 1941 crash retrieval. So as far as I can tell, the government claims to have no records of the incident. Various parties have done FOIA requests to any and anybody and everybody, you know, the FBI, the, the Air Force or the Army or whoever it may be. And they all just said, nope, we've never heard of this. We don't know what it is. We don't now, have- that's interesting because didn't yeah. the fire department have some sort of record? I saw that, but I was unable to find those records or substantiate that. But I did make a note of that. Give them a call. I know, right? And the um, the article that I found that in had a couple of other things that were sort of 
didn't line up with information I found found elsewhere. So I'm wondering if that was a journalist that was perhaps embellishing a little bit as they are known to do on occasion <laughs> or on almost every occasion. So I don't know that particular, I'm, I mentioned that stuff from that article, but uh, with a grain of salt, because it may not be super accurate. Um, I think that if that was true, some researchers would have dug it up if the, if that fire department had actual records, but who knows, you know, maybe they're under wraps. Maybe the fire department is not releasing them. It could be anything, but I couldn't find anything outside of that article about those records, unfortunately. So yeah, we talked about uh, Aurora, Texas. Now it just, one, one thing that got me thinking when I was looking into this, now the modern UFO era began in 1947 with Kenneth Arnold. And a lot of people think that this has to do with the nuclear weapons detonations, which the first detonation was actually in 1945, which was the Trinity test. And the idea goes that, you know, somebody out there noticed that a couple of monkeys had gone from banging sticks together to splitting the atom. And that caught the attention. And that's why you saw massive waves of UFOs after that date. But a big old flap. Yeah, it turns out, though, that that was not the first flap, uh, modern flap anyways. You had the Foo Fighters during World War II, and there were plenty of other sightings before that. That is just when you had a certain type of mainstream recognition of, of everything, right? It was sort of treated differently after 1947, probably because Kenneth Arnold was a really good witness and he took really good data for his sighting as good as possible. We did an episode about Kenneth Arnold. So if you're curious, go ahead and listen back on that. It was a while ago, <laughs> but it got me thinking and I looked up and it turns out they were doing nuclear experiments, like as far back as the thirties where they were testing that stuff out. So maybe that got the attention of whoever's out there, you know, and that's, you know, maybe why you started seeing the Foo Fighters showing up or, you know, other stuff in the history that started to pop off in the late 1800s, early 1900s, such as, you know, hot air balloons or powered flight that started to begin as early as the late, actually hot air balloons in the late 1700s. We started to get airships in the mid to late 1800s. The Wright brothers did their thing in 1903. Modern electricity started to begin in like the late 1800s. Any of these things could have prompted a visit from the neighbors. And one idea that's been proposed is that an alien species might put probes into any solar system that has life just to sort of monitor it. And if something happens, like let's say we develop streetlights or nuclear power or something strange like that, it'll ping the probe, it'll send a message home, it'll be like, hey, these guys did something weird, come on over and check it out. So I don't know, that just kind of occurred to me when I was looking into this. You know, as to why would there be something in 1941 when um, popularly it's believed that there weren't a whole lot of UFOs around until after Kenneth Arnold, but that's actually not true. So it's just, you know, a little thought process there that uh, that I went through when I was looking at this. I don't know. What do you guys think? Uh, it's always... Well, I think it's... Uh, yeah, go, go ahead, ETA, go. Oh, I was just saying, like, you know, uh, like one of the things that, like, when you're talking about that, that kind of like... Uh, made me kind of had a spark of, uh, you know, uh, information or, or, you know, made me think about was what about some of the, the, the stuff that Nikola Tesla was doing? I mean, we don't know exactly how advanced he got at the, even though there, there is a lot of speculation and, and a lot of potential there. Uh, what, what if his, some of his experiments, you know, had, you know, garnered their attention of our neighbors or what have you, you know? 
Right. That's actually, I have on the list, I'm calling it Tesla versus Edison. <laughs> That's an episode oh, yeah. that I want to do, yeah. Where did I oh, go? Yeah, sure. I feel like it was, was it Niagara Falls? I went up to the Canadian side and they had a statue of Tesla. Hmm. I, I want to say it was Niagara Falls. It was a long time ago. Hmm. Okay. Was it anything like the statue of Mothman? No, he was fully clothed and... Oh. Uh, <laughs> he did not have powerfully juicy no. glutes? No, he did not. And there was <laughs> no live camera. No live camera action. <laughs> oh, I love that, dude. It just, you know, it just goes to show you just how weird West Virginia is, is that somebody put a live Mothman cam on the statue. <laughs> yeah, the statue. But, and also how the statue is, is shaped in certain areas like they spent time yeah. making that you know like they, there's a lot of effort that was put into that statue you know? i and love it somebody somebody was definitely a fan of uh you know somebody was an ass man you yeah know? or lady we don't know <laughs> right, right, yeah. either way yeah could be yeah <laughs> all right so the main witness of this event that at least that we have a record of was the reverend william guy huffman and uh, so Guy is actually his middle name, G-U-Y. I think, is that like French? Is that a French name? Huffman? No, Guy. Oh, mm. oh I, I don't know. know. I don't know. What's up, Guy? I, I don't think know. it's, it's hey, just guy. an American name from the time. Is it? I don't know. So he was aged 52 at the time of the event. We don't know the exact date of when the incident occurred, but we can approximate it because um, the granddaughter's uh, mother. So I guess um, Huffman's, I think it was Huffman's daughter was pregnant and gave birth at a certain time. And then they know the event happened like a few weeks before that. So yeah, estimate, I think it was in May. Rough estimate is uh, mid April, possibly May, but um, most accounts are well, like mid April. When she was born was supposed to be in May, from what I, I understand. Right. Yeah. And they know that this happened on a Saturday evening but they're just not quite sure which Saturday. So they think it was sometime mid-April, yeah. So the event started when witnesses saw a fireball streak through the sky and it came down in a rural area near a farm or perhaps in the woods, depending on who you ask. <laughs> and uh, this happened sometime after 8 p.m. And when it came down, it started a fire in the area. Now, people assumed that this was a passenger plane because... You know, that's what they thought it was. You, a crashing plane came down, caught on fire. I mean, that's just kind of what it looks like, I guess, when a plane crashes, when it has problems in the air. Uh, so that happened about a little after eight at some time. Huffman got a call at nine or 9.30 that evening uh, from the Cape Gerdardo police. They said that they needed him for a tragic plane crash that happened outside of town. Did I mention Huffman was a, a preacher? Yes. Did I, did I mention that yet? Yes. Okay. He's yeah. a preacher man. Yeah, he's a preacher man. So they needed him to come out for, Pastor. you know, any prayers that might be needed given the situation. So they said he was needed right away. And he said, yeah, sure. Why not? I'll do it. So a police officer came over to pick him up and take him to the crash. Now, the the story goes that the police officer, the person, well, the person who came to pick him up was actually... In a non-marked car, so they were just in a plain car, and they were not in uniform. Now, we don't know exactly why that is, but my guess is that it was Saturday night, and it was an emergency. So probably or possibly it was an off-duty officer who wanted to get there as quickly as possible and did not want to take the time to suit up. Well, what kind of car was it? Was it an MIB? 
No, no we I was just thinking the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> what you see, you don't see or whatever. I don't know. But yeah, no, we don't have a whole lot of details because unfortunately the main witness didn't actually go on record for this. We only have the main witnesses granddaughter on record so we don't have all the details that we would ordinarily have for a case unfortunately but that doesn't mean it's not worth covering that just means that we're not going to have as many details as we would for a more modern case so they drove to the area which was about a 10 to 15 mile drive and this is just outside of town or you know a few minutes out of town and when they arrived at the crash site there were already some people there some police and some people in plain clothes. And by some accounts, now it's a little fuzzy, but we don't know exactly when people arrived, but people arrived over time while the preacher was there. And at some point, the the FBI was supposed to be there, photographers and military men as well. The military supposedly didn't show up until a little bit later while he was there. But it kind of kind of begs the question, why did the military show up so quickly? Normally, the military doesn't necessarily go to, uh, you know, a civilian plane crash, as far as I'm aware. I don't yeah. know. It's kind of interesting. Well, and it's kind of funny also that, that Hoffman uh, showed up there before the military. You know what I mean? Like how fast he was called to the scene. Kind of like to me, it, it, would, it would suggest that like whoever had called and made that decision to have him come there didn't exactly understand like what had happened. They just thought it was a small plane that crashed. They, they had no idea that this could be potentially a UFO crash. Right. So because they it's, were, it's one of the things that kind of stands out to me that like how fast he got there, how fast he was called. And like, like, uh, like, yeah, you, know, you might want to kind of question like, why was he even called, you know, but it's not that big of a question because in these communities around this area, they, they are very religious and so if they think that something had, you know, somebody had passed away, what have you, they would want as fast as possible to have, you know, a uh, a pastor get there and, and, you know, read rites to the dead or what have you, or pray for them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that makes total sense to me that they would get, they would get uh, somebody over there, you know, a priest over there to do some prayers, you know, if they're, if it's a highly religious area, that totally makes sense. So the, what supposedly happened is, or we can only speculate, but it crashed and people saw it crash, but they didn't necessarily go to the scene. So we can speculate that the farmer that was nearby saw the crash from a distance. And then rather than going to investigate himself, he immediately went to the nearest phone to call the police or fire department, which yeah. were apparently in the same building. And this person, because the time was still the tail end of like the great depression, chances are pretty good that this person would not have had a phone so they might have had to go a little bit out of their way to get to a phone. So let's say this thing comes down at like 8.30 and he takes half an hour till 9, he gets the call. And before the police have any chance whatsoever to go out to the scene, you know, as they're out the door, on their way out the door, they call the preacher and said, hey, you know what? This looks bad. We're going to need a preacher. So they give Huffman a call on their way out the door. And that's yeah. kind of looks like how events unfolded. We don't have that level of detail that is only speculation, but that's, I think that's a somewhat plausible. That you know. makes so much more sense to me. Good. Th was that something you came up with yourself? Kind of, yeah. That, I guess. That, that's pretty cool. <laughs> I, I believe that. I was skeptical about picking up a preacher for some aliens, but the way you just described it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, no, yeah, like I think ETA was saying too. Yeah, like I don't think that, um, I don't think that they, 
knew it was aliens when they called the preacher. They were just doing that because they thought it was people out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's what I'm assuming, but we don't know because we don't have those details, unfortunately. So when they arrived at the scene, Huffman saw right away that it wasn't any sort of passenger plane. In fact, it seemed to be much smaller than he expected. The wreckage had a rounded shape and didn't have any edges or seams, and it had a shiny metallic finish. Sound familiar? You know, what was weird Mm -hmm. to me was that he saw the inside, right? Yeah, because there's apparently like a hole in the side of the craft, and he was able to take a peek inside. Now, is this like a door, or was it a hole from the crash? What do you think? It was a hole from From the crash. From what I understand, yeah, a hole from the crash. And he said that he saw like symbols that was like on a a band around like the inside of the vehicle that to him looked like uh, hieroglyphics or what he was familiar with, like Egyptian hieroglyphics. He couldn't decipher what they were. He didn't like really recognize what they were, but that was the closest thing that he said, supposedly, uh, like the closest thing he could relate it to. Yeah. And he saw a small metal chair and he said, said he saw gauges and dials and things that he didn't even know what they were. One, only one chair? That's what the description says, but he might have just said a metal chair. It's possible that more chairs were somewhere else in the craft and he just didn't see them. Or it's like Star Trek where they're standing at their stations, you know, like one's a science (laughs) officer and nobody wearing a (laughs) seatbelt. Yeah, yeah. And and, and who knows? (laughs) Who knows what kind of damage, if you were just to sit there and believe that this is a, a crashed spacecraft. You know, what kind of damage could have happened? You know, could, could, if there were other chairs, could they have been dislodged and moved to a different section of the vehicle or outside the vehicle, whatever, you know, that's possible, you know, so who knows what, what that would look like. Yeah, for sure. And well, as far as how it came down, a lot of people will say, I think we've talked about this before, but people will say, well, if they're so advanced to come here, then their technology would be infallible and they certainly wouldn't be crashing. But, you know, it's possible they didn't account for something, whether that something is, you know, the magnetic field around our planet, which I don't know, it seems doubtful that they would not account for something as simple as that, or yeah. maybe some of our technology like um, like radar or something like that, radio, maybe, who knows, it could be anything, or maybe they just had a mechanical issue because just because they're aliens doesn't mean that their technology is infallible. So who knows? Could be anything. Yeah. Or it could be something like the War of the Worlds where they didn't take into account like bacteria and stuff, right? Well, that's that story doesn't make any sense to me because an advanced civilization is definitely going to know about like microbial life forms like bacteria <laughs> and they're going to have of a course, way of yeah. dealing with them. Yeah. So that story is a really fun story. I really like it. And it's, you know, in some parts it's a Halloween tradition to listen to that. But yeah. um, the, it doesn't really hold up to modern times. But back then, I'm sure it made a lot of sense. But it's still a really fun story, especially um, if, who is it? Uh, Orson Welles did that radio production, right? That was a uh-huh. pretty good production. So if you're, you know, I think it's online for free. You don't even have to pay for it. It's just in the public domain these days. I bet it's on YouTube. Probably, yeah. Oh, for sure. So in addition to the crashed craft, Huffman also saw three childlike bodies on the ground. Two of them were closer to the vehicle, and the third was a little further away. And the assumption here is that it was alive long enough to sort of crawl away a little bit, because when Huffman got there, he saw that it was still breathing a little bit, and it apparently took a few breaths before it finally passed away. 
The creatures themselves were covered head to toe in what appeared to be wrinkled aluminum foil. This description really got me. Like, I'm having trouble in my head imagining what that looks like. And is that a uniform? Is that skin? Well, I have a direct quote we can read later on because it's really interesting. So, they don't mean that it actually looks like aluminum foil, but it looks similar to wrinkled aluminum foil. And they didn't have hairs or ears, but there were dots where the ears would be. And their arms were longer than normal, and their heads were bigger than what you would expect for somebody four feet tall, like a child. They didn't have any apparent bone structure, and it was described as sort of like an octopus's arm. Huh. Right? Like they were just like, I don't know, weird. Really weird description. Uh, They had large oval-shaped eyes and holes for noses and a small lipless slit for a mouth. Oh, little Voldemort's. Yeah, little Voldemort's. <sighs> and <sighs> the granddaughter said that the, uh, we'll talk about the photograph later, but she actually saw a photograph of these things. And she said that the eyes were actually um, positioned vertically on the creatures. Vertically? Vertically. And they took up most of its face. Not horizontally, not slanted, but vertically. Vertical oval shaped eyes that took up most of its face. Huh, I'm having I'm having a lot of trouble picturing this creature. Really That's, weird. There's some it's big an eyes. unusual description. Weird stuff, man. Have you heard of a description like this before? No, I have not. She also said that um, it looked a lot like the alien on Whitley Strieber's book, Communion. It was not an exact match, but it was similar to that. So if you guys have seen the cover of that book, that's a pretty creepy, it's like a gray alien, but creepier, you know, kind of, I don't know. Yeah. It's hard to describe, but you could look that image up. It's a, it's a pretty well-known image uh, from that book. All right. So, um, yeah. So the creature had long hands with three long fingers, much longer than would be normal for a person. So Huffman was asked to do a blessing over the creatures. And he did starting again with the one that was still breathing. When he got there, he did, um, you know, some last rites over the bodies. And after he did that, the, I guess by that time military had arrived and they told him to never speak of the incident again for national security reasons. Sometime during the event, two police officers lifted one of the bodies and stretched its arms to the side and they were holding it under the armpits. So here's the thing. The, the first mental image I had when I read this yeah. was selfie. Because if this was modern, like if this right. was happening in the present day, they'd be like, I got to get a picture with this alien for my Facebook. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. Check me out, bro. I got an alien. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> So they got the photograph of that. And um, well, it's it's interesting because this photograph existed in the wild for a while before it was lost. So two weeks after the event, a photographer in the congregation supposedly came to Huffman and gave him this picture. But that picture has it's went missing. It apparently was loaned to a friend and disappeared. And I was I like, I think the, uh, I've heard, like, I've heard the, the, uh, the interview with, uh, Charlotte Mann. Yeah. And she, she said the friend that he loaned the picture to, his name was Walter Weinfisk or something like that. Mm-hmm. Like, like I didn't see it written down, so I don't know exactly how it's written. I just wrote it down in my notes, just like how she said it, you know? Walter, so, Walter Wayne Fisk. Wayne Fisk. Yeah. 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 
And I just, I yeah. mean, re- reading that, you're just like, come on, you know, seriously. Like, again? <laughs> Give me a break. Come on. Can't we just have one, one case? Well, to be fair, we do have cases where stuff survives, like the, um, like the Montreal UFO sighting, where we have a pretty good picture from that one, actually, which is what, you know, it looks a lot like what the witness described. So there are pictures out there, but there's a lot of them that go missing. And not of aliens, though. That's no. rare. There are there are some pictures of aliens, but I have not seen any of them that I'm totally convinced by. <laughs> you know, a lot yeah. of them seem a little fishy. But there is a picture available online for this case that well that is often associated with this case. But I looked it up and it just it looks like a small man, you know, just maybe maybe even a child. I don't know. A sm- looks like a small person who is malnourished. You know, like they're very skinny looking and it's a pretty grainy black and white photo and it's kind of hard to see details, but the person in this photo that I found definitely has bone structure. You can see their face. It looks like a human face. They look totally human. They don't know. Yeah. Do not look alien at all. It definitely doesn't look like they have like wrinkled aluminum foil all over their body or what have you. Like even if it's a suit or whatever, you know? Yeah. They don't have three fingers on their hands. Their arms are just the normal length. It's bears absolutely no resemblance to this case whatsoever. But I think the pose that the person is in is somewhat similar. So some people say that this is the photo, but it's not. There's no way. If you pay attention to the details of the case. So the guy you were talking about, Walter Wayne Fisk, was actually tracked down by the famous Stanton Friedman, who found him in, uh, I forgot to notate it, it was like Arizona or something like that, Arizona or Nevada, one of those states in the desert, you know. Uh, but he wouldn't talk, you know, he wouldn't give up the goods. He wouldn't say anything about the incident. That's <laughs> interesting. You think yeah. he'd deny it? Well, what it sounds like to me is maybe he got gotten to and the government found him, confiscated the photo and was like, hey, you don't have this. This never existed. And if you talk about it, we're going to yeah. murder your children, you know, so <laughs> kind of a deal. So, you know, he was tight lipped. He wouldn't, he wouldn't respond to um, Friedman and he would not respond. Well, he wouldn't tell Friedman anything over a phone call and the, the granddaughter, Charlotte, he wouldn't even respond back to her. I guess she sent him some letters or something. I don't know, but he wouldn't even get back to her at all. So he's just, you know, incommunicado. Um, hopefully he has that photo or had it and it'll turn up somewhere. That would be really awesome. But chances are, uh, it was confiscated as these things almost always are. They, yeah, for sure. How many cases have we listened to, or have we done where people send a photograph to the Air Force for, you know, quote unquote analysis and the Air Force, quote unquote, loses it and never actually sends it back so uh-huh. many times. And I find it hard to believe that the Air Force is this bad at keeping track of stuff. Maybe once or twice, but every single time, I don't think so. Agent Ether, would you like to read this next part here? Yes, I would. <laughs> Sorry, I'm very, very tired. I didn't sleep good last night. <laughs> all right. It starts with someone came to the house. Yeah, I got it. All right, just make sure I'm you're, all over make it. Make sure you're in the right place. She says, and I quote, Someone came to the house. This gentleman came to the house two weeks later, and he seemed, grandmother said, very, very frightened. So it's, it sounds like a narrative that she's telling that she heard from her. Yeah. From her grandmother. And he wanted something, someone. He wanted someone that he trusted to have a copy of the picture, and he asked Grandpa if he would take it, and he did. So that's how we came about to even having it. 
My father had this picture, which I had seen. I don't know when I saw it the first time. I've seen it many times, and it was a picture of a little alien that was held up under the armpits. There was a man on either side, and they had one hand under the armpit and then further out on the arm because... Page turn. Uh, because they had much larger, longer arms than no, we because, have. Because the little guy had much... It was the turn page. Yeah, it's, but it got I, li- me, the, I like her phrasing there. The I'm picturing. Guy. I'm picturing her with her, you know, Missouri uh, accent saying, because the little guy had much larger, longer arms than we have. That's not a Missouri accent, but you know what I mean. To continue. And I grew up seeing that occasionally at home. I didn't think much about it as a younger, but as I grew older, I began to ask questions about it because I was always very fascinated with the eyes. I wasn't afraid of them exactly, but they haunted me. Yeah, pretty. It kind of it kind of sounds it kind of sounds like uh, Huffman was using this photo as like a party favor. Yeah, you know, like like whenever they had gatherings and stuff, he'd always break it out. Hey, check this shit out. Yeah, well, it seems like you know he wasn't necessarily keeping it a secret. You know, but on the other hand, um, he, he wouldn't, he never publicly spoke of the event as the story goes, he got home that evening and he was after the event, when he went home, he was a little freaked out and he told his family about it, about what had happened, you know, his wife and, um, his kids, but he'd never told it to anybody else ever again. Um, and he actually asked his family to not talk about it either. And they promised not to tell either. His wife never spoke about it until she was staying with her granddaughter and getting treatment for cancer. She was undergoing chemotherapy and pretty much on her deathbed. It was a deathbed confession. You know, her granddaughter was asking her about it. Hey, what about that photo? What's the deal with this story? And she finally spilled the beans and told the story. And that's how we know anything about this at all is because of the grandmother. Other than that, we wouldn't really would not know anything about this case at all. It would be just completely gone, which makes you wonder, are there any other stories like this that have disappeared? Well, there were other witnesses, allegedly, so you would think other people had talked about it. Yeah, but yeah. none of them came forward because That's at, true. at the time, the, the uh, military rounded up everybody and told them all not to talk. And... You know, by by Charlotte's testimony, she says that they intimidated some of them. I guess the grandfather was, he was on board. He was like, yeah, okay, I'll do whatever you guys, whatever you guys want. This was a different time, a more innocent time when people actually trusted the government. <laughs> so if the government asked people to do something, quite often they would just do it, you know. But um, they they intimidated a lot of people, apparently. But well, we have some more testimony about the event. Would you like to read that, Agent Ether? I don't know. It's like three pages <laughs> of testimony. You want me to read it all? Uh, you could skip around, I guess. Okay. There's some. There's some really good stuff in here, though. Okay, I'll paraphrase around. So she talks about, upon arrival, it was a very different situation. In other words, he was expecting it to be an aircraft, but it was not. It was a saucer. And it was metallic with no seams, and it did not look like anything he had seen before. It had broken open in one portion, so yes, it wasn't a door. Right. So he could walk up and see uh, metal chairs, gauges, and dials, which we talked about before. 
and inside were inscriptions and writings which he compared to Egyptian hieroglyphs. Mm -hmm. And then she said there were three entities or non-human people lying on the ground. Two were just outside the saucer and a third was further out. And his understanding was the third, like we'd mentioned before, was not dead. Um, there had been mention of a ball of fire, yet there was... And you, it just says there was fire around the crash site. Yeah, because this is from an interview. So this is her words. Yeah. And she's, you know, she's not speaking perfect English here, but she's talking in her local dialect. So it says there, there had been mention of a ball of fire, yet there was fire around the crash site, but none of the entities had been burned. And so father did pray over them, giving them last rites. And she goes on to say there were many people there, fire people, photographers. And so they lifted up one and two men on either side stood him up and they stretched his arms out. And as we talked about, they went ahead and took a picture. She describes it as we have talked about. And four feet tall. Four feet tall. Appeared to have no bone structure and they were soft looking. And here's the interesting part. He had a suit on or we assume it was a suit. It could have been his skin and what looked like crinkled soft aluminum foil. I recall it had very long... Okay, wait. Actually, I have another bit about the... the another quote later on that, where she describes it differently. But yeah, so about the long hands and all that stuff. Uh, and then she talks about there being photographers, fire people, and then... Not so long after they arrived, the military just showed up, surrounded the area, took them off in groups separately, and spoke to each of them. Grandfather didn't know what was said to the others, but he was basically told, this didn't happen, you didn't see this, this is a national security issue, don't talk about it again. And she says her grandfather was an honorable man and he was a preacher, but he came home and told the story to my dad, who was there, and my grandmother and my uncle, but not her mother, who was in the bedroom at the time. Yeah, and I think that, yeah, the mother was expecting. That's, that, that was the uh, pregnant person at the time. <laughs> so they, she didn't hear the story, apparently. Yeah. At yeah. the time, yeah. And then he never talked about it again, but two weeks later, one of the men who had a camera, a personal camera, had put it in his shirt pocket. And I'm assuming it wasn't confiscated because the military didn't know he had it. Right. So he took the picture and gave the grandfather a copy. So that's how he came to, to have one. And she says the other people seemed to be intimidated and very frightened and paranoid. Right. Well, everybody was probably freaked the heck out, right? <laughs> and, you know, if, if the military, just imagine if you're there as a firefighter or, you know, a photographer for the local paper trying to, you know, cover the story. And then you, you arrive and that's the scene that you come upon, this bizarre crashed saucer. You don't know what that is. You have no context for that. You're going to be pretty freaked out. And then the military shows up, circles the area, separates everybody into groups and says, look, this didn't happen, you know? And if you're like, well, it did happen. I have, this is my job. I have to report it. And they'll be like, no, look, this didn't happen or there will be consequences to you personally. Like they threaten people is what it sounds like. Yeah. So it's a pretty crazy situation. No men in black in this one, unfortunately. <laughs> Maybe some Jedi mind tricks though. Like these are not the droids you're looking for. Yeah, probably. Yeah. 
So there were some other witnesses. For example, Charlotte's sister confirmed the story, and the brother of the uh, Cape Grado sheriff, or the the guy, the sheriff in 1941 was Clarence R. Shad, and his brother said that he also heard of the crash, but he didn't see it or experience it firsthand. He had just heard about it from his brother. And other, we don't have really a whole lot of other witnesses for this one because it was a really long time ago and people just apparently didn't talk about it. It did not make the papers, national, local, or otherwise, that at least that I could find, no press coverage. It was kind of just hushed up. Now, the fire department uh, supposedly had records of the event that confirmed that the military made people not talk about it. And that also talks about the military removing stuff, but I'm a little skeptical about that. Um, I don't know. It's possible, but if those documents ever show up, then I'm definitely willing to admit that I'm wrong. But until then, I'm going to take that one with a grain of salt. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Now, there are some other tidbits for this case. There is supposedly a precedent presidential briefing document titled Magic Eyes Only on 9-24-47. And a quote from that document is, based on all available evidence collected from the recovered exhibits currently under study by AMC, that'd be Air Air Material Command, etc., RAND, that'd be the RAND Corporation, USAAF, U.S. Army Air Force, and MIT, obviously uh, the, the, the university, are deemed extraterrestrial in nature. This conclusion was reached as a result of comparisons of artifacts, redacted, discovery in 1941. The technology is outside the scope of U.S. science, even that of German rocket and aircraft developments. So this document appears to be from the Majestic 12 document leak, so we got to take it with a huge grain of salt. Um, I'm on the fence about that one. I want to believe it, but there's also problems with it. So I'm not going to necessarily take it as truth. But if it's true, right here, they're talking about probably the Roswell crash and comparing those debris with a previous crash from 1941, which would, of course, be the crash we're talking about in this case file. But who knows? It's highly speculative. Okay, so a further quote from that document Even the recovery case of 1941 did not create a unified intelligence effort to exploit possible technological gains with the exception of the Manhattan Project. So they're suggesting maybe some sort of nuclear-powered craft, I don't know. But it's, it's interesting, but I couldn't find any real actual copy of this document outside of the Majestic 12, so we have to take it with a grain of salt. All right, now there's, let's see, there's some more stuff. I think we already talked about that, about him breathing. Uh, About, let's see, still breathing. Just another, so we'll probably skip those because um, she worded it a little differently in a couple different interviews. Uh, So I thought that that was interesting, but it's not really really that interesting. Or um, maybe not that necessary, I should say. But this one, I really liked this particular description. The alien, I don't, oh, you want to read this one, Ether? Okay, the alien, I don't know how to describe it exactly other than to say it actually did not look like it had on clothes, but there were no physical male or female features. And it looked crinkled, kind of shiny, if you will, as if it could have been aluminum foil and crinkled. So I don't know if that was a suit or his skin, but it covered every part of him. 
You couldn't see seams or buttons or anything like that. And the interviewer asks her about the crinkly skin. Did did it appear to go like above the neckline because if it stopped at the neckline, maybe it was some kind of outfit? Did it cover the face or whatever? And she says, now this part, this is the part that's really interesting. It did not actually. That's why I say it's hard to know what you were looking at because there was no seam. It wasn't like if you have a suit and there's a collar with a seam. It just blended it. It just blended or moved into. I don't know how else to describe it. So it just sort of blended in. She didn't really know how to describe it. That's the best she can do. But that suggests that whatever she was looking at, she had no context for. And there's nothing on this planet that you can compare it to, really. The best is soft aluminum foil that's crinkly. Um, Let's see. So yeah, we talked about that and that. So yeah, that's pretty much the end of my notes for this one. A little on the shorter side than normal, but that's because there is very, very little information available for this case. Unfortunately, it was a really long time ago, and we just don't have as much data available to us as we normally do. I did a lot of searching for this one. I searched, um, I have a lot of PDF documents that Isaac Coy has provided. They're available online, thousands and thousands of documents, and I found very very little mention of this thing at all through books, magazine articles, newspaper articles, whatever you can think of. You know, I searched thousands of documents and there was almost nothing on this case at all. Thousands, very little. Huh? Yeah, no, really. I can show you all. I'll, I'll uh, look up right now. I can look up how many documents are in this. Um, this little, I haven't even downloaded everything yet, by the way. <laughs> but Oh, I had a mental image of you like going over the internet with like a thousand tabs open. And like different locations. You mean the actual site has thousands of documents? No, I downloaded the PDFs and then I use PDF Exchange Viewer to search for keywords. That's really cool. You know, you couldn't have been able to do that even 10 years ago. No, and it's really awesome because it's such a tremendous research tool. And there's so many documents, it would it would take a lifetime to sort through all these things and and index them and whatever. But all right, so let's see. I'm going to right-click. What if you could create like a, uh, what am I thinking of, those AI programs, the artificial intelligence programs, to go through these documents online, like Fold3, uh, Black Vault, Vault, and those sorts of things, and say, solve this problem. Yeah. Are there aliens? Offer the best proof you can. That would be so awesome. Yeah. The problem with um, the Blue Book files is that a lot of those are very difficult to read. And a lot of them are out of order, but there's probably still enough there that the AI could dig into. If they can translate, what was it, Sumerian? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I have faith. Right. I have faith. So anyways, in this folder, I currently have 319,469 files. I stand corrected. <laughs> it takes a while to search all those too. So if if you see my computer over here crunching something or other, that's what it's doing. Um it depends. I don't always search through those files because often I have a lot more information that's really readily available. So I might search through a handful of those files, like the NICAP website files, for example, you know, and find some really good stuff. But when you don't find anything and you just keep searching and then there's just nothing. I found, um, the only thing I really found was there were two Australian news. There's like an Australian UFO newsletter from back in the day. And there were two entries in that newsletter that talked about it. 
And that's pretty much all I could find in that whole repository. Pretty crazy. But, oh, by the way, like I said, I haven't even downloaded everything. That's that's just scratching the surface. And, but, well, maybe I'm probably halfway done. I don't know. There's a website. And, you know, it's there's a guy, Isaac Coy, who is usually on the ATS forums. He's an anonymous barrister or lawyer in England, and he doesn't want to be publicly known because it would have... Um, it would have uh, professional ramifications, right? Yeah. So he does everything anonymous, anonymously, but he has done significant efforts to like digitize documents and put them into PDF form so researchers can utilize them as a source of information. Just a tremendous effort on his part. He's done a ton of stuff for the field, and practically nobody even knows who he is because he's anonymous. I have, I wanted to actually... Um, ask him if he wants to be interviewed for the show, but he's not going to come on. So I might ask him if he wants to do like a text interview kind of a thing where I mail him questions. He can answer those questions and then we'll just read it because if he comes on the show, people will recognize his voice if he's a public figure, right? That would be really cool. What kind of questions would you ask him? Uh, I don't know. I have to come up with a list, you know, I'm not sure yet. I'd have to brainstorm some stuff, but um, I'd want to ask his opinion maybe on certain cases and things like that. Cause he's very, uh, he keeps his cards close to his chest. He doesn't necessarily come out on one side or the other. He comes out on the side of, okay, well, look, let's provide this inf- information and you guys decide, but I don't know. Is he a skeptic? Is he, is he, uh, believe some of this stuff? I don't know. He never really says, but a really interesting individual in, in the world of, uh, ufology. And of course, you know, as you would expect from this field, it's he's very cloak and dagger about everything. <laughs> you know, it's uh, all good fun, I suppose. But yeah, where were we? Oh, you're talking about the AI stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that would be really cool. Uh, I don't know. Anything else you wanted to say about the AI stuff? No. All right. Uh, well, final thoughts. Um, this one is a really interesting case, but unfortunately, we don't have enough information to say whether or not it really happened. I mean, it does look like it. Uh, there's some evidence there. You have a lot of people who said they saw, well, not a lot, but a decent number of people who said they saw the photograph and that, you know, the father told the story and that he wasn't one to make up this kind of thing. And, you know, those sorts of things, but we have testimony, which is essentially hearsay, (laughs) you know, would not hold up in a court of law at all. So I don't know. It's one of these cases where it's a really interesting story, but we don't know for sure where the evidence is. And, you know, the evidence, if there was, was swept away by the military, never to be seen again. What do you guys think? Well, I mean, I, I'm, I completely agree with you. You know, it's a very interesting story, but it, it's, it's told by Charlotte Mann, you know, and it's like a, a third party kind of a thing there. Right. So like there's no firsthand accounts or there's no real solid information. It's a very interesting story. It sounds really cool and everything, but I mean, there's not really a whole lot to go off of, you know, like it, it's, there's no solid evidence, you know, just a story that's compelling and, you know, you either choose to believe it or not. Like there's, there's nothing to really make you believe one way or another, whether it's fake or if it's real, you know, so it's an interesting story, but in my opinion, I don't necessarily believe it or I'm not like, like, you know. I'm not like hard lined one way or another. Like it's just, it's just, I feel it's, you know, more unlikely than likely that this actually happened because there's just not enough solid proof to me for me, 
you know? Right. Yeah. What do you I'm think? I'm not saying she, Oh, sorry. I'm not saying she is lying. I'm sorry. I'm not, I'm not saying she's lying. I'm just saying there's not enough there. That's all. Right. You know? Yeah. Well, for me, I'm wondering what it's going to be like several generations from now. Mm-hmm. You know, you always have that story, that family story that's going to be passed down. And like her great, great grandchild is going to be like, you know, <laughs> once upon a time, a long time ago, your great, great, great grandmother saw a picture of an alien. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Folklore, you know. Or what if, what if we get to a point where, you know, they, let's, let's go under the assumption that aliens are here in some shape or form and the government finally says, okay, look, here's the deal, guys. We think you're finally ready for this information and says, here's the real story. And they, they have this stuff, you know, in one of these, you know, Indiana Jones warehouses somewhere and they finally release it. And this, the wreckage from this crash in 1941 gets put in, Put in a, you know, UFO museum somewhere. Oh, I'd love to go to a UFO museum. That'd be badass, that right? That would be so much fun. Hell yeah. yeah. That'd be cool too. But all right. Well, I guess that about wraps it up for this week's episode. Thank you guys so much for listening. We really appreciate you guys. And before we leave you, I we're going to do a shout out for the show, right? What is it on Redbubble? Yes. Okay. So... We have a new new store that Ether set up on Redbubble. We still have the old one on TeePublic. I didn't necessarily shut that one down yet, although I probably will. But the reason we're switching is because um, I bought a couple of t-shirts on there and they were very low quality. Like the printing started to peel off after I only washed it like once or twice. So yeah, I, me thought, too. I thought, okay, so the prices there tend to be cheaper. But I thought, well, I don't want to like pitch something for people to buy that's pretty much garbage quality products. So, so we started a new store. We don't really make any money off of it. Maybe like a, you know, a few pennies here and there, but we started it just because, you know, some people want the merch. So we have the merch. So grab some stickers, grab a button with the new logo, with the old logo. Yeah. You know, have some fun with it. The old logo is still there. If, you know, if anybody wants to get that one, we're, we're not going to completely abandon that because it's a pretty cool logo. A lot of people like it, so that's there as well. Uh, you can order whichever you prefer, or go nuts and get both. <laughs> you know. All right. Well, thanks everybody so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Keep it strange. <laughs>